of you to entertain me for just one second and close your eyes and think of the most interesting, mystique, mysterious picture of a crater you can think of. Open your eyes, please. This picture was taken at the northern rim of the Ramon crater. After 12 hours of hiking, as the sun was setting and I still had four hours of hiking ahead of me. And to me, this became the picture that really represents my journey on the trail. As you can see, there are two roads, to the left and to the right, where you can stray, but the general direction, the road south, is wide open. Rocky, rugged, difficult, but wide open to whoever wants to walk it. Up above, stormy clouds, the difficulties, the doubts, the challenges that I've experienced along the way. But the best thing is, there's a light at the end. So a few more words before we actually start walking, and I'd like to introduce myself a little better. As you were told, I'm Udi Goran, I'm a travel photographer. And like many other Israelis, after my army service, I went on a gap year and went traveling. But my gap year ended up extending to six years. <laughs> And during that time, what I realized that not only do I like the sense of discovery, of seeing things for the first time or seeing things at a new light, but I also love the documenting part. And I like to bring the stories back with me and paying them forward after I'm, after I'm back home. So the next natural step was to go and attend school, and I chose the best school I could find, which was the Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. And as Ari mentioned, I was lucky enough to intern with National Geographic in DC. And at the end of this period, I was finally, officially, a travel photographer. But throughout this time, I never found the time that it takes, the two and a half months that it takes, to travel the Israel Trail. Because first, who has time to take two and a half months out of life? And if you've already taken two and a half months out of life, why stay in your backyard and not go somewhere far? Now, I've actually did try twice. I've set out on the trail twice, both were in 2007. Both times I ended up stopping about a week into the trail. Had you asked me back then, I would have told you that this happened and that happened and circumstances were such, but reality was that I was just not ready yet. And I am a firm believer that things happen in their due time. My due time was the winter of 2014. In the summer of 2014, I'm sure you all remember, a war with Gaza broke. At the time, I was living in Tel Aviv. I've just come back from the US not that long before. I was setting up a new business, my photography business. And as I was doing that and living in Tel Aviv, which is a pretty expensive city to live in, very fun, but very expensive, I was starting to take any photo job that came my way. And little by little, I grew very frustrated professionally because that's not what I had in mind. I wanted to travel and see the world and tell stories. And then on top of this professional frustration, the war broke out. Alarms in the middle of the night, running down to bomb shelters, missiles overhead. And I sit at home and I watch TV and I read the news and I go over Facebook. And all I can see is how the country is going into this next world of violence, and I could just not deal with it. I've just come back from the States. I had different things in mind. And both things, this professional frustration and this, the war that broke, up was, broke out was too much for me. And I felt I just had to get away from where I was. Now, as a traveler, my initial instinct is pack a bag and go. 
This time I decided I was going to pack a bag and stay. And I want to read to you a few lines from an email I've written to media outlets and magazines after deciding that this was what I was going to do, and this might shed a bit of light on my decision. This journey is my way of dealing with the recent conflict in Gaza. Reactions from politicians, the Israeli public, and even acquaintances made me feel hopeless and that I no longer belong. After much contemplation, I had decided to do the opposite of my immediate reaction. Go out to find, walk through, and experience the land outside of the headlines and the friction. So I've set out to reconnect with the land. So here I am, still at home, still in Tel Aviv. I haven't walked a single mile on the trail. I'm feeling very disconnected from where I'm at, and I decide I, that I'm setting out on this trail. Very last minute, Rotem, a friend of a friend, decided to join. She heard I was going, she liked the idea, and she came along. Today, in retrospect, I can tell you that this is probably the best thing that had happened to me before leaving for the trail. Because not only was she a partner in the logistical sense, meaning when I ran off to shoot sunsets, she could pitch a tent, or she would cook, <laughs> and I would clean, or we, we would share laundry duties, but she was also a partner for the experience. She was a partner in sharing all of our experiences, in going through this together, and sharing our doubts, and sharing our fears, and sharing the insights and the great moments that we've had, and having someone to process it with. So after all this, what is the Israel National Trail? So the Israel National Trail is one long distance trail that starts from Kibbutz Dan up north near the Lebanese border and goes all the way south to Eilat near the Egyptian border. The idea was actually inspired by the American Appalachian Trail in the 80s and it took until 94 until they finally inaugurated it and the first person walked the whole trail through. In 2012, the Israel National Trail was pronounced as one of National Geographic top 20 long-distance hikes in the world. In 2015, a first-of-its-kind project was launched in collaboration with Google, and the Israel National Trail became the first long-distance trail to be fully documented on Google Street View. A few months ago, it was uploaded online, and actually you can go home right now and watch the whole trail walk it's step by step. Don't do it quite yet. Wait for about another hour, but you could. Now, what the planners had in mind when they connected these existing trails to create this one long distance trail was to give the trail hiker a taste of everything Israel has to offer, be it landscapes, be it wildlife, history, archaeology. You meet every facet of Israeli society, all religions. But the best thing is, that you actually get to walk and physically experience go walking from one type of landscape to another. And so for when you hike down from the Jerusalem hills towards the Shfila, Israel's lowlands near the beach, with every mile you walk, with every couple of hundreds of steps, you actually notice how the hills little by little flatten out and then all of a sudden they turn into vineyards and fields and little by little you actually get to experience under your feet how the scenery completely changes. We've set out in the fall 
When you set out in the fall, you set up from the north, and as winter kicks in and the weather cools down, you make your way down south to the warmer desert. When you start in springtime, you do the opposite. You start in the south, and as the weather heats up, you go to the cooler north. To me, going out on the trail was a huge change. From being a city boy, taking pictures, then editing them in front of a computer, then all of a sudden it's 12 and 15, sometimes 20 miles a day of hiking. It's 40, 45, sometimes 50 pounds on your back. And aside from your shoulders getting adjusted to the shoulder straps and your knees start, to, to start getting adjusted to the, to the weight on your back, the big change is how your mind starts getting adjusted. And after some time outdoors on the trail, you start getting more and more connected to nature. You start noticing things. You start noticing stars every single night. You see flowers blossoming, you see insects. And all of a sudden you really start communicating with mother nature. These three pictures that I would wanna show you, and that's why I stopped, were taken in the Carmel area near Haifa. I'm sure you've all heard about the fires that broke out last week. And as you can see right here, these are actually, this, these are trees that were already burned in previous fires because that area is pretty prone to fires. And th this area was burned once more this past week. So hopefully um, in, in a few years, we'll get to see this again. This picture was taken at the top of Mount Arbel, about 10 days into the trail, overlooking the Sea of Galilee and the Golan Heights. And in a second, I'll tell you what happened right before we climbed this trail, we climbed this mountain. But before I'd like to extend the question, and I'm sure someone here has some medical knowledge, what are the chances that a young, healthy man that's pretty much in shape would dislocate a hip without some severe trauma, without getting hit really hard? Guesses? <laughs> so, there's really no chances of this happening. Three different professionals I called up said it's absolutely impossible. The hip is the strongest joint in the human body, so without some severe trauma, nothing happens to it. Now, about a week into the trail, I started feeling some pretty bad pains in my hip. In my younger years, I was a professional volleyball player, and I know my body pretty well. I knew something was definitely, definitely wrong. And we were outdoors, big backpacks on our backs, away from any city or doctor, and, you know, kind of feeling like Rambo. And before climbing this mountain, I had to take care of it. Now you see why Rotem was essential for this trip. So after that, we were ready to move on. And our first story begins in Kinelet, a little agricultural village at the southern part of the Sea of Galilee, originally founded, as I've said, as an agricultural village, 
by, and, and was home to some of the more prominent Zionist figures. Maybe the best known one is Rachel the Poetess, who have written some of the most beautiful poems about this area of Israel, about the Golan Heights and the Sea of Galilee. And she's still buried in the cemetery there. We're and going there on our trip. I'm sorry? We're going to go to the cemetery. Oh, here you go. And so you're going to be on the trail because on purpose, the trail goes through the cemetery so people can walk by there and pay their respects to her. So this, uh, this place, the next day, was going to be the longest day on the trail up until that point. Now, keep in mind, winter is kicking in, so days are growing shorter. And not only was it going to be the longest day we've had, it was also a day where we only had one way out in case we got in trouble. So here we are, right here. This is the tip of the Sea of Galilee, right here. This is Kinneret, where we left from. We need to cross this entire um, valley, crossing the Yavniel Ridge, and go to a whole different part of the country by Mount Tavor, this dome-shaped mountain. This is Israel's second highest mountain, and it's very easily recognizable because it looks like a perfect dome. Now, in spite of being a long day and having to cross to a whole different part of the country, what we did know is once we reach this outlook right here, this is going to be the highest point of the day. And from that moment on, it was going to be either flat or downhill. So with that in mind, we started preparing for the next day. And I'm going to read to you a little excerpt from my travel journal to kind of get you in the state of mind we were in. The hardest thing to cope with, or the least familiar, is the physical fear of tomorrow. It's supposed to rain, which means we'll be hiking wet. It's a long, difficult day, longer than all previous days, but we can't postpone because it's going to rain for a few days. And the last thing came up when I called the trail angels in Kfar Kish, and the woman said that after rains like that, it's extremely hard to walk in the Galilean mud, and the trail becomes very problematic. So there's a long, difficult day with heavy packs, in the rain, with questionable hips, and in the mud. All of this is causing me real anxiety, especially because of the unknown, obviously. Worst case scenario, we cut short to Yavni'im. Even worse, we'll get rescued. We probably won't die. <laughs> now, obviously, you can imagine that this bit of sarcasm came to disguise the, the real anxiety I had from not knowing how my body would react the next day. And that's why we've said before sunset, we started walking. And by the, sun, but by the time the sun came up over the Jordan River, the rain already had come back. So with, be it, with that day being a rainy day and the previous week being rainy throughout the week, the trail was indeed very hard to walk. The, tra the trail markings were hard to find, and we were kind of having a pretty rough morning. But remember I told you that after some time on the trail, you start connecting with nature. And we felt that Mother Nature was sending us a very clear message. It was going to be just fine. <laughs> now, if I can remind you the story of Noah's Ark, who was the messenger of good news, the dove. So we got eight of them, just to reassure us. 
But the woman from Kfarkish was not lying. If you look at the bottom of Rotem's shoes right here, there are two inches of thick mud that sticks to your soles with every single step. And there's nothing you can really do about it, because if you stray off the trail, if you walk in this dry bush, it's like building a mud hut at the bottom of your shoes. It's mud, it's dry, it's dry bush, more mud, so there's no point. And we just had to power through this little bit of the trail until we finally started climbing up. So now we had the uphill to deal with, but at least we were walking on rock and not on the mud anymore. So as we're now struggling going uphill, all of a sudden we see this site, which is a cabin in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Now if you're in the States, it kind of makes sense. You have cabins in the middle of the woods and so. But in Israel, this is quite a, a rare site. There's no real road leading up to it. It's pretty far from any city nearby. But there are two cars, there are a water heater, the Israeli flag. To this day, we have no clue what it is, but at least it distracted us for a little bit as we were walking up. The good thing about walking up is that with every few um, hundreds of feet you walk up, the valley behind us started opening up more and more, and we saw more of what lays beneath us. And finally, we see that outlook that we're heading for. This single pistachio tree marked this outlook. And when you finally see the end, when you see the end point, then you get all your strength, and in spite of the packs and the mud and the rain, you power through and we make it up there. And when we do, Mother Nature calls us to us. It calls out to us again. The sky open up, the clouds scatter, the sun comes shining through, and this whole rainbow appears down in the valley. We sit down to eat our lunch and looking at this amazing view, and you can see the Golan Heights, the Sea of Galilee, the Upper Galilee right here, and right here, this is where the Jordan River leaves the Sea of Galilee and starts making its way through the Jordan Valley towards the Dead Sea. So we take out our lunch of sandwiches with tahini sauce, avocado, and onions, which is a meal worthy of kings under the circumstances, and we have it, and then about, we get about 10-15 minutes of break, and then 15 minutes after, the clouds start gathering back up, and we know it's time to go. We start packing, and as we're packing, all of a sudden, we hear a bird call coming from our left. A flock of black storks comes flying by. Now, as a photographer, how often do I get to shoot, and obviously I mean photograph, birds from up top? So obviously, backpack down, camera at hand, I run and I start snapping pictures. Over Israeli sky, every year, 500 million birds make their way twice a year. Once, flying down from Europe to Africa, and another time, flying back. Israel has the second highest concentration of migrating birds per square mile in the world, second only to Panama that sees the migration between the two Americas. Now remember I told you that the trail hikers, in the fall, we start from the north and walk south. In the spring, we start from the south and walk north. Well, all we're doing, we're imitating nature. We're just imitating the natural bird migration that has been happening for, for hundreds of thousands of years. When the birds pass us, they catch a thermal current, disappear into the horizon, we know it's time to keep going. 
We had two more interesting encounters that day. The first, Vasily and Anton. This Ukrainian duo came all the way from the Ukraines only to hike the Israel National Trail, but they were so unprepared thinking, well, Israel, it's all desert, right? <laughs> so when the rain started, they had to take cover because they had no proper rain gear. But not only that, they had to take off their sandals that were stuck in the mud and we found them barefoot. The next encounter was also kind of amusing. A river crab came up from the Tavor Creek, stood in the middle of the trail like a trail guardian, not letting us pass. I obviously took it as if it was posing for pictures. And five minutes after we're done with, with the crab, we finally see where we're headed to that day. The Tavor again. Now, we weren't gonna reach the Tavor mountain that day. We were gonna reach Farkish, that little village I've mentioned before. There was a campground where we were headed, and as we walk inside the village, we wave down a car, and we ask the couple inside, where's that campground where we're headed to? They give us directions, and they keep going, and then about 20 feet after, we see the, start, the car stop, they pull back, roll down the window, and look at us with great empathy in their eyes, saying, you look very tired. How about sleeping in a real bed tonight? Well, sure. <laughs> so Noam and Asnat took us in, and they let us stay in their spare bedroom that, weren't, that wasn't being used. And that night, we got to watch the sunset over the Tavor from their backyard. Now, Noam and Asnat were really lovely, lovely people. But as we found out along the trail, this phenomenon of trail angels was not uncommon. Now, the idea of trail angels actually also comes from right here, from the Appalachian Trail. But in the States, what they usually help out is with logistics. You can mail packages to them, they pick you up, they drop you off, sometimes they would take you in and offer showers. But in Israel, it took a step forward. And in Israel, trail angels usually offer to stay with them, free of charge, they expect nothing in return, and they let perfect strangers, as long as they're trail hikers, to stay in their homes. Now, in order to really explain to you how remarkable this phenomena is, I want to tell you about one specific trail angel family. But before that, can anyone recognize where the last three pictures were taken? Ari, I have a feeling you have a good guess right there. Yeah, we are in the Ramon Crater, absolutely. And the reason I'm showing you the Ramon Crater again is because this story starts in Mitzpah Ramon. The town on the northern rim of the Ramon Crater, originally founded as a work camp for the people who paved the road down south to Eilat, and in the late 50s was actually established as a town, and the trail goes through there, and we ended up staying a little longer than we've expected. Now, normally, you give the trail angels a heads up of a day, or a day you call ahead a day or two in advance to let them know you're coming, and we only had an hour. So we called the Taberski family, we let them know, listen, we're here, we're kind of stuck, we know it's last minute, can we come anyways? They say, sure, but come quick, we have to leave. We pack our bags, we go over there, the wife immediately takes us in, shows us these are your beds, this is the shower, feel at home. I go downstairs, I start speaking to the dad, and in Israel, like in Israel, we have mutual friends, people that went to high school with me. And I immediately took a liking to this family, because they really reminded me of my family. They told us, come quick, we have to leave. Three hours later, we're still in the kitchen chatting. <laughs> now, the reason they had to go is that this was Hanukkah. 
and they were going to drive up north to celebrate the holiday with their family. But because they've already taken us in and let us stay with them and really treated us like family, they couldn't leave without letting us feel some of the holiday spirit. And that was it. After that, they've left, leaving Rotem and myself alone in their house, knowing perfectly well that it's going to be just fine, and that's the way it works. Now, some places along the trail took it even a step further, like this place, Sansana, in southern Mount Hebron, on the northern edge of the Israeli desert. They've allocated this B&B-type cabin only for the trail hikers. And whoever walks through there and gives them a heads up, can stay there for free, and if you're diligent enough to wake up very early in the morning, this is what you see on sunrise from, that, uh, from the porch right there. Now, being a trail angel is not only about hosting people. A lot of people, as we found out, when they've met us along the trail, and they started talking to us, they saw the big backpacks, they heard what we were doing, they actually became trail angels even without planning to be such. Encounters with every such random act of kindness, I felt that this was the reason I've set out on the trail. And little by little, I felt how this burden I was carrying on my shoulders started lifting. Now, this next story starts with a specific trail angel. I'm taking you back to Mount Tavor, and we ended up, of course, reaching the, the mountain, and we ended up staying a night at a cave in the mountain, which was a horrible idea, but it's a story for a different time. <laughs> And because of that, as soon as the sun came up, we packed our bags and we ran down to the village of Shibli, a Bedouin village right under the mountain. Bedouins are one of Israel's, uh, Israel's minorities. They're also Muslim. And 
there was nobody up. Now, oh, there was nobody up aside from this horse standing by the window waiting for its owner to wake up and feed it. Now, we were looking for a grocery shop. We had to get groceries, make breakfast, and head out because we had a really long day ahead of us. So we walk back and forth. Nobody is up aside from this horse until we finally meet Kultum. Kultum was sitting at the porch of her house, sorting out herbs, and we walk over to her and we ask where the nearest grocery store is. And she says it's on the other side of the village. It's a half hour walk away. So half an hour there, getting uh, groceries, buying breakfast, walking half hour back, we would have wasted the entire morning. That wasn't an option. So we decide we're going to set out on the trail and we'll just figure it out along the way. We walk back to her and we ask if we can just fill up our water bottles. She looks at us and she says, absolutely not. Put down your backpacks, sit down on the porch with me, and she serves us the best breakfast we could ask for. Freshly baked pita from the village, sour cheese that she's made, pickled olives, fresh vegetables. Not only that, she sends us on the road with huge apples that kept us going all the way till lunchtime. So this was our first encounter of the day that we didn't know yet was going to symbolize how this entire day was going to turn out. So zero expectations, amazing hospitality, and really feeling very good about the, per the people that we met. The next encounter was a little more surprising. I remind you, we're up north in the Galilee, in a forest. All of a sudden, a camel sneaks up on Rotem as she's putting on, putting on her backpack. And as we're making our way away from the Tavor, towards the city of Nazrat Ilit, Upper Nazareth, which is a Jewish city, and as we're getting closer, we open the map and we see that right in front of it, literally across the road, there's an Arab village called Ein Mahel. The map says that in Ein Mahel, there's a restaurant. Now, after two weeks of eating sandwiches with tahini sauce, avocado, and onions, we have a major crave for proper hummus. So we walk in the village, we look for this restaurant, the owner is standing outside looking for clients, as soon as he starts talking to us, we stop him right there, that's what we're there for, and we walk inside, we put down our backpacks, sit down to eat, and then about five minutes later, he comes up to us and he starts talking to us. So the conversation actually started when we overheard him argue with his business partner in the kitchen. They argue for a couple of minutes, then he comes up to us and he asks, is it true that you're going to be walking all the way from here to Eilat? So we say, yeah. And then he asks the question that I can now tell you would be the most frequently asked question on the trail. Then where do you charge your phones? <laughs> 
So he came up and we started talking and he told us about the olive picking and the horses that he raises, the village, the restaurant, his family. And we shared our stories about ourselves and what we're doing and where we're from. And the more we spoke, he actually mentioned that a lot of trail hikers, a lot of Jewish trail hikers, go through his restaurant and sit down there and eat. But the more we talk, we realize he knows absolutely nothing about the trail. So even though all these trail hikers come there and sit there to eat, still there's this disconnect. Somehow they don't manage to communicate that well and he knows absolutely nothing about what they're doing. Now, since we were pretty much on our own there and he sat down with us for that entire hour and we shared our stories and we really managed to connect person to person, we felt that after this hour, we were able to really bridge this gap And what started with breakfast went on in lunchtime, creating this really great connection with a person and feeling very good about coming in with zero expectations and being treated with great hospitality. The last place we were going to pass that day was another Arab village called Mashhad. Both the guidebook and the trail maps say the same thing. The The scenery is not that great. There's nothing really to look for there. And the trail markings are often erased. Just walk in, go out the other side. It's not that interesting. And a friend of mine that finished the trail about a month and a half before we started said the same thing and added that as he walked through there, he felt a little uncomfortable being there on his own. So with that in mind, we start walking in. From time to time, a street vendor gives us a nod. Some first graders just learn to say shalom at school and they run after us saying shalom, shalom. And as we're making our way through the village, Rotem all of a sudden remembers that she wants a notepad. Because when you hike, you have a lot of time to think. And every once in a while, there's actually a thought worth saving. And if you don't write it down, it's out. So as we were making our way through the little winding alleys of the village, all of a sudden we see a stationary shop. We walk inside, the owner is sitting with his back to the door, lights, the lights are off, TV on, and he doesn't notice whoever comes in. We walk inside, we say hello, he turns to us, puts on a huge smile, turns off the light, turns off the TV, turns on the lights, orders us to put our backpacks down and have coffee with him. Muafak is the self-proclaimed messenger of light and peace in the world. He used to be a school teacher, and he quit teaching when he felt that the age difference between him and the students was too large. And he opened a stationary shop, and he always keeps at hand this visitor's book for the kind people that he meets to, um, to leave kind notes to him. So he, he serves us coffee, then he takes us to his home, which is right nearby, tells us about his family history and shows us the family albums and all of that while repeating over and over again, it's very easy to walk into my shop, it's very hard to leave. (laughs) This day, these encounters, these unmediated, personal, real connections were the first major step in me creating this connection with where I lived, with Israel, the connection that I was looking for. At the exact same time, in these very days, as we're experiencing this, had you read the news in Israel, you would have heard something completely different. A terrorist wave starts in Jerusalem. People were getting run over every other day. An Israeli singer releases a single about uh, 
Muhammad and a young Palestinian, Ahmed, a young Palestinian only looking to execute his next terrorist attack. A terrible massacre takes place in a Jerusalem synagogue and a Druze policeman, Druze are also one of Israel's minorities, one of Israel's, it's a sect of Islam. A Druze policeman that was nearby walks into the synagogue, defends the people that were there, gets fatally wounded, and dies of his wounds a week later. A day after he dies, the nationality law is brought to vote, proclaiming that only Jews have the right of self-determination in the land of Israel. If I were back home, listening to the news, only reading the newspaper, only watching TV, thinking this was the only reality that exists in Israel, this is exactly what brought me down. This is, these were exactly the things that got me so depressed and made me want to leave. But when I was on the ground, meeting the people, experiencing firsthand these encounters, my experience was completely different. Now, as we've actually experienced, in the Galilee, it's very easy to find coexistence. When we went down south, we actually managed to see some of the complexity we have with the Palestinians. When you walk down south, the trail actually passes by the separation fence. This is the, the, the separation wall or the fence. Some parts it's a wall, some parts it's a fence. And right here it's a fence. This side right here is Palestine, this side is Israel. And as we're walking there, all of a sudden we see something very strange. On the other side of the fence, uh, two pickup trucks pull, pull over, 15 guys come out of them, everyone carrying their packs or their bags, and they're just standing there looking towards the fence, looking towards Israel, and they just wait there. And as we're seeing this and we don't understand what they're doing, then we get an answer a couple of minutes later. This is Rotem right here, this is the trail. A car pulls up right in front of us, it stops, the door opens, and three guys come running out, run towards the fence, get there, hop over it, and go back home. And then we get it. These are day laborers. They hop the fence in the afternoon, spend the night in Israel, they work the next day, and then go back home when they're done working. And as we keep walking and we see this scene unfold in front of our eyes, we kind of start thinking if the separation fence is supposed to separate Israel and Palestine, but day laborers can cross it at will, then what's it really doing there? Now, the Palestinian story is just a small portion of our mutual history as Israelis in the land of Israel, in the land of Israel, or as Jews in the land of Israel. And as we started walking the trail, actually we started experiencing some of this history. Maybe the best example is these clay fragments that I have here on the table, which I invite you all after the talk to come uh, look through. These clay fragments are hundreds or thousands of years old, and you can find them almost everywhere in Israel. Now, anywhere in the world, anywhere else in the world, these would have been a sensation, right? Archaeological artifacts that are hundreds or thousands of years old, but in Israel there's so much of them. And they're so ingrained into the land. They're just a part of it. We take it for granted. ADVs run over them. People don't even bother to pick it up. As an, as an archaeologist friend of mine said, this is archaeological trash. And there's just so much of it, we just take it for granted because history is so rooted into this land. Now, 
I'm not a historian, I'm a photographer, but as I've started walking the trail, I felt that little by little, I started to form this idea, this lesson that I could take from history. And it, I felt it started brewing in my mind right here in the Amud Creek by Safed in the Galilee. Now, this area used to be the, um, the industrial um, hub of the Galilee many years back. When you walk the Amud Creek, within eight hours of walking, you cross about 26 old flour mills, which made it the industrial hub it was. And they're now all abandoned. They, they were active for the past 500 years. So if you don't pay attention, you actually don't realize that through these eight hours of walk, you are, you're actually crossing 500 years of history, 500 years of change. And if 500 years is a long time for change, what about these caves that were also found in the Amud Creek? Archaeological findings have proven that they have been inhabited for the past million years. Some of the most important archaeological findings about Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, about the evolution of the two, were found right there. But Israel is not only about the changes that go through it. It's a lot about intertwining the past and the present. For example, this family's house, not far from Caesarea, that has literally built its house 20 feet away from a 2,000-year-old Roman aqueduct. This Roman aqueduct used to be the peak of technology. The Roman engineers used arches and bridges and they dug tunnels. They used cement, which was a brand new invention, to carry water from the Carmel Mountain all the way to Caesarea, four miles all the way to Caesarea, which was the most important city of the time. They were actually so far advanced that for these four miles, they kept a steady incline of 10 inches per mile to keep the water flowing. Not far from there, this inscription was found, made by the soldiers of the 10th Roman, Roman Legion that was stationed there to defend Caesarea. Now just imagine what these soldiers had in mind when they inscribed this, belonging to the most powerful empire of the time, using the most advanced technology. Could they even imagine that only 400 years after they've inscribed this, the Roman Empire would no longer be? It would transform into something else, but the Roman Empire, as they knew it, would just cease. Now, this idea that I'm trying to form actually came into fruition here in the, uh, in the hills of Jerusalem. We're looking at Hadassah and Karim Hospital, the hospital that has the most advanced trauma unit in the world. And if you look at its surroundings, it looks, it looks pretty barren. There's some rocks, there's some forest, but the only sign of human inhabitants are way far off in the distance. Well, not exactly so. About half a mile to the west of there is the Sataf, one of Israel's most layered and most interesting archaeological sites. It's been inhabited for the past 6,000 years. And every empire, every people that came through this land actually left another layer in its history, be it the Calculites, the Byzantines, the Ottomans, the Romans, the Brits, the Israelis, everyone left another layer in this place's history. Maybe the most interesting trivia about this place is that 4,500 years ago, they started using agricultural terraces to make the best use of the rainwater. Well, at the exact same time, on the other side of the planet, in China, 
they started using the exact same technology. Now I remind you, this is 4,500 years ago, way before globalization, way before even international merchant routes. The same technology was invented on both sides of the planet. And as we were here looking at this view, I was actually forming this idea that I'm trying to tell you about. And if we look at the Amud Creek and we notice and we actually understand how much things change all the time, and if we look at the Romans and realize that one day you can be at the top of your game and the next day you could just no longer be. Or if we look at this place, at the Sataf, and we realize that unlike we love to think sometimes, we're not history itself. We're just the current layer in history. I realized what I was missing. And what I was missing was perspective. This lesson really started getting me to think about the big picture and looking at things, take a step back and concentrate on what was good in life and what was good in Israel and what I had that was good in, in this life in Israel and starting to stay away from what was keeping me down. Now, if we're walking back in time, why not walk back millions of years back? And there's no place better to do so than crater country in Israel. Trick question, how many craters does Israel have? Have. Guesses are welcome. Well, the most frequently answered answer is three. And the best known ones are the small crater, the big crater, and the Ramon crater. But Israel actually has five craters. There are two more smaller ones in the, in the western part of the Ramon crater. Why am I telling you about the Israeli craters? Well, because they're unique, they're a unique phenomenon in the world. So there are only eight of this type of crater created. They're called erosion craters, and that's a very specific geological phenomenon. There's only eight of them in the entire world. Five are in Israel, two are in the Sinai Desert, and one is in Alaska, buried underground and can't be studied. Because they're so unique to Israel, they were mainly studied there, and it ended up being that the internationally agreed upon term for erosion crater is the Hebrew word for crater, machtesh. So if you ever in your travels stumble upon a Japanese geologist and you tell him about a machtesh, he knows exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the Israeli craters. You cross along the trail, along the Israel trail, you cross the three major craters all within one week. The first one is the small crater, and I'd like to share with you our introduction to the small crater. So before I tell you exactly what Rotem meant, I want to take you in the small crater. And the first thing that hits your eyes are the colors. 
the sand absorbs the minerals and the iron creates the, the purples and the reds, the copper creates the greens and the blues. And as soon as you start hiking down into the crater, this is the first thing that you notice. Now, what did Rotem mean? Because we started from the north, there were a lot of settlements along the way. There's Moshavim and Kibbutzim and some towns, and it's very easy to get water and food. And in central Israel, it's even easier. You have gas stations and people that you know along the way. But when you reach the desert, that's when the trail actually changes. And specifically, when you reach the crater area, that's when what really dictates the walk is the points of water. And you start walking from one point of water to the next. Now, the, the small crater is not such a difficult hike. It's a pretty long day, but it's pretty easy to walk it until the very end, when you need to start climbing out of it back up to the rim. It's a 45-minute hike, very steep, at the end of the day, no shade throughout the day, but for those who are willing to make the effort and climb out, it's certainly worth it. Now you saw we met with another group that day. We finished the day together in this outlook and we walked the half hour that it took from that outlook to the campground where we were staying. We pitched our tents, we made a little fire, and we started getting ready to pass a pretty relaxing evening after a long day. But as the sun set and the moon came out, all of a sudden I noticed it was a full moon and there was no way I could stay and just hang out with them. So, tripod on my shoulder, camera at hand, I walk back to this outlook by myself at night to take this picture. Now, the reason you can only take this picture when it's a full moon are the, backgrounds, the background lights right here, coming from the Jordanian mountains. At nighttime, every light is multiplied tenfold. And unless you have another light to illuminate the inside of the crater, then the background lights would just be too bright and they would just start burning some of the picture. So really, it's only when there's a full moon out illuminating the inside of the crater is when you can take this picture. Now, the first crater, the small crater, is the first of the three. Two days after comes the big crater, the most difficult day on the trail. Now, this is a day that people actually speak about as, as you're hiking and kind of prepare for and kind of amp themselves towards it. And because it's the most difficult day on the trail, we've set out as early as possible. 4 a.m., we were already out of the tent, starting to get ready. But as soon as we walk outside the tent, there are no doves and no rainbows. A desert storm is coming towards us. And at this point, we know that if Mother Nature tells you something, you listen. And we decided we were not going to hike that day, since there's a storm coming. We were going to wait it out, go to the nearby town, and come back the next morning and try. But as every day, we still needed to pack our tents and pack our bags. And um, we start getting um, our stuff together. And if you notice, Rotem is going to come out of the tent about 5-10 minutes after I do. And she's going to be ready about 5-10 to 10 minutes before I am, which is the reason we had a pact. She cannot put on her backpack until I put on my backpack so she'd stop getting annoyed with me. 
Now, as you can see, Rotem is ready and gone, and I am being a very thorough packer. So we're done. We go out to the road, start hitchhiking to go to the nearby town, and I go through the camera, and I look at this time lapse you've just seen, and all of a sudden I notice the camera stopped working. All right, so I start messing up, messing with my camera, and then Yossi, this truck driver, pulls up with his 18-wheeler monster, stops just to pick us up, so I don't want to keep him waiting. So I put my camera in my pouch, and I bend over to lift my backpack. I hold the shoulder strap, lift it up, pull it up, and pop! The strap breaks. So now we're sitting in his truck. The camera stopped working. My shoulder strap just broke. I can't wear my backpack anymore. This was definitely not the day we were supposed to hike the most difficult day on the trail. You can actually see how we felt looking at Rotem's face. This is exactly the, the spirits we were in. So this one-hour ride turns into a five-hour ride, all the way back to Tel Aviv. I put my camera in repair. I go back home. I take a different backpack, take a different camera body. We find a uh, ride back to the south that same night, and the very next morning, we still head out on the most difficult day on the trail. As the sun comes up, this is the first sight we see, this post-apocalyptic Mad Max movies kind of scene. But the more time passes as the sun rises up in the sky, we realize it's actually a great day. The weather is fine, we're making great headway, and we're really enjoying this hike. But there's a reason this is the most difficult day on the trail. Do you see the people in this picture? Do you see them now, right here? So this is how you cross the entire day, the entire rim of this big crater. You walk the whole rim that day on very hard rock, diagonally, one leg up, one leg down. And this is how you cross. And this is how you cross the entire rim of the big crater. But I'm sure you all know that the harder you work for something, the more rewarding it is. And as we're making our way through this through this part of the trail, as we're inching through it, as we're actually putting this effort to earn every mile that we walk through this hardship, through this difficulty, I feel how I'm actually getting connected to this land in the most physical, literal sense. And by the time we reach this outlook, overlooking the entire big crater, I actually have a hint of pride sneak into me, thinking that this, in a way, is also mine. Now, I can honestly tell you, I've trekked the Himalayas, I've trekked Patagonia, I've trekked some of the major parks here in California. The crater area in Israel is of the same grandeur as these amazing landscapes. The remoteness, the silence, the, the millions of years of geological processes that you actually get to experience and take in and feel firsthand just instill a sense of awe in you as you walk through it. After we were done looking at this and admiring this view, we start making our way down back to the desert, from the rim, back down, through this margin-looking landscape that was shaped by millions of years of floods and winds and, and tectonic movements, jumping from rock to rock, climbing down ladders, and by the end of this day, we feel we are no longer afraid of the desert.
which was great because the last part of the trail is the Eilat mountain range in the very southern part of the Arava, the Israeli desert. When you start walking into this area of Israel, on the trail, the first big panorama, the first mesmerizing view that you see is this, the Timna Valley. You walk over a curve and all of a sudden this opens up to you. It's just revealed in front of your eyes. These, um, these uh, colorful mountains that seem to have just sprung out from the earth. And obviously the picky photographer that I am, I made Rotem walk for another half hour until we found the perfect spot to sit and have our lunch so I can take pictures. And as we're sitting there and admiring this view, we kind of think between ourselves, when was the last time we were there? And for both of us, it was when we were kids, when life was so simple, with, when we were so naive, with this very naive sense of belonging and how much we've been through, how much we've changed throughout this time and how little this place has actually changed. And the next day we went, we made our way into this valley, into the Timna Valley, climbing down from these cliffs to the Arava, to the flat part of the desert. And we were actually thankful for making our way like the birds, north to south and finishing in the desert. Because towards the end of our trail, in the desert, we had a lot to think about. And the desert, with its remoteness and its silence, gives you the space that you can actually contemplate. And as we went inside the Timna Valley, overlooking these cliffs we just came down from, we were reminded of that poem that the trail angel gave Rotem. Remember? There was a sign saying, remember this guy. He gave her a poem by Israel Chevroni called Crumbs. Going out to the desert is going out of your settled, organized, well-formed self to the great confusions, the chaos, the floods, the sandstorms, and there, between heaven and earth, to crash between rocks, to be sent off from cliffs, to fall apart limb by limb, and on the way back home, to gather all the crumbs of desolation to one little stone, precious, unique. We had three more days in this amazing landscape and all of a sudden it dawns on me. In three days I'm going home. I'm going back home to deal with everything that I've run away from, to see if I can actually take in and implement all the things I've been through, this connection, these, these encounters, all of these insights that I've had along the trail. And a day before the trail ended, it was a little too much for me to think about. And I had a tiny bit of a meltdown. I want to read to you what I wrote in my travel journal that night. We went on to Netafim Creek, an enchanting place that I simply couldn't focus on. An existential bummer came upon me, which also ruined it for Rotem, which brought me down even more. At some point, I told Rotem to keep going, and I simply sat and cried my heart out. I cried out all the doubts and the misery. I experienced a sequence of questions and answers and insights in record time. After 10 minutes of beating myself, I realized that I needed to summon myself a Vipassana retreat as soon as possible, to release whatever is stuck, to make myself happier, to let go of the terrible and the repulsive and bring forth the good and the positive. 
When I calm down, I've set out a new man. Rotem waited for me up the creek on a cliff overlooking the trail, and we watched the rock hyrexes run down to eat after hiding between the rocks all day. The trip was fun once again. So it was Hanukkah earlier, now it's the New Year's, the perfect time for a New Year's resolution, and mine was to take this Vipassana retreat. Vipassana, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's a type of meditation that's very popular in Israel, and I've been wanting to take it up for years and years and kept postponing it, and finally in 2015 I did take it, and it made a huge impact on me. Aside from that, I moved out of Tel Aviv, I moved to a little moshav, to a little village, on the outskirts of, uh, of Tel Aviv, where it's green and quiet and peaceful, close to family and friends that I hold dear and love. And when we finally were about to finish the trail, I realized that the trail was actually a closure for me. It was the end of a period, and it marked the beginning of a new one. And when we were here on Mount Tzfachot, the last mountain we had to climb on the trail right by Eilat, I actually realized that this connection I was looking for was established. And I was actually eager to go back home and excited to start this new period in life. So I want to take you back to the last mountain we had to climb on the trail, Mount Tzfachot. טוב, ויש לזה רגע של התרגשות. אנחנו בפסגת הר צפחות. ההר האחרון שהיינו צריכים לעלות. אילת פרוסה לפנינו. יש לנו שתי אופציות. או שנרד ישר למלון הנסיכה לכיוון חוף האלמוגים, שזה שם. או שנמשיך ונרד בתוואי הישן של השביל, יותר דרומה, שמגיע ממש עד מסוף טאבה. נראה לי שאנחנו... אחידי דעים על זה שאנחנו ממשיכים דרומה זה תצפית לארבע מדינות שפה זה ישראל, שם זה ירדן ועקבה, שם זה כבר ערב הסעודית ופה ממש זה כבר מצרים, אלה החופים הראשונים של סיני. זהו, קצת מצחיק לחשוב שבעוד שעה וחצי, שעתיים ככה לכל היותר אנחנו מסיימים, מסיימים את השביל וזהו so we did end up walking as far south as we could, as close to the border as we could. Now the reason they changed the trail is this. This border fence right here is the new border fence between Israel and Egypt. And whenever there's the border fence, there's the military. So as we're making our way down the mountain, all of a sudden we stumble upon an army post. Now calling it an army post is a little bit of an exaggeration. There were three soldiers sitting there bored out of their minds and the last thing they've expected was to see two hikers coming down from the mountain. So by the time they grabbed their gear, ran up the wrong hill to get us, we were already standing right there next to them and they called their commander, asked them what to do and the commander says, I don't care, just make sure they're out of our way, walk them down to the main drag in Eilat. They could have not been more excited to get out of there, even if it were for just 15 minutes. 
So they were excited that they got to walk out of there, and they were excited for us because this was almost the end of our trail, that they've decided that this little stretch they were walking us on, this was the end of the trail, and we didn't want to ruin the excitement for them, so we played along. וואו, שאלה טובה, רותם, רותם, שרים, שרים זה זה, שרים זה האזור של רותם. שלום לך ארץ נהדרת. סחטיין, בהצלחה רבה, תודה, חברים, תודה, תודה. יאללה, אתם תבלו, תודה על הליווי, וכן, לגמרי תעשו את השביל. ביי. So we're almost done, but there's one thing I still owe you. Remember that I said there were two reasons of set out on the trail. One was to find this connection that I found. But the other one was a growing professional frustration. And maybe the biggest gift I've gotten from this trail is what you see in front of you right now. Since I've finished the trail, this became my passion project, which I dedicate most, most of my time to. This is my second US speaking tour, which I get to speak about something that I really, really love. And the next stage of this project is going to be printing out the first ever photo book about the Israel National Trail. I've recently established a collaboration with an Israeli tour company to bring people to Israel to walk the trail and do photography trips on the trail. And this actually enabled me, finally, to do what I really love and what I wanted to do as a photographer. So let me take you and finish the trail. There's a הנה השלט מסוף טאבה, לא חיכינו. מוכנה? היי, זה הכי רחוק שאפשר להגיע בלי דרכון? מעולה, באנו לגעת בגדר וללכת. קדימה, סוף המדינה. שביל ישראל. And then we were done. Thank you. Thank you. So this is how we celebrated the end of the trail. We've been talking about this for two and a half months since day one. No matter what time we get to Eilat, we're going to jump in the water. And even though it was evening and kind of cool, We were, in, we were in there. So what I have here for you, first of all, the clay fragments, please feel free to, to touch and feel and go through them. There are the trail maps and the guidebook, and I'll be happy to answer questions if you have any. The prints are handouts, and if you like the talk and you want to share the love, there are cards, please feel free to take one. 
And um, the photo book I told you about is going to be crowdfunded. So if you would like me to notify you when the campaign goes online, which will happen very soon, uh, please sign in in the sign-in sheet. Or if you're interested in the, in the tours in Israel, please also sign in or take a card and contact me. And we will, I think, take questions now. Please. So how long was the trail? Um, for us, it took 71 days, but we did it fairly slowly. So normally it takes two months, um, but because of the camera and because of just wanting to take it slow, it took us 71 days. Please. So did I, did I plan on going by myself? Yeah. So initially I did. Initially I was about to set out by myself and then Rotem heard about it and decided she was joining and as I've said, it's probably the best thing that had happened to me because this would have looked completely different without her. I think I could have made it without her, but it would have been much, much more difficult. Much, much more difficult. Because you don't have someone to share, first of all, the duties, and then sharing. Because there are some things that you carry. For a couple, you, you carry the same thing as for one person. So a tent, you only need one. And all the cooking utensils, you only need one. And, and food is much easier to carry when you're two people. Um, so I feel I would have made it. But it wouldn't have been as easy, and it would have been, yeah, much, much more challenging. Absolutely. Please. I have some um, Saba cousins in Israel who have done this. Um, I think one of them did into the book trail, but not in one setting. I mean, they'll go for a day or mm -hmm. two. Or, is that a common way that people, that Israelis complete the trail? But, so can, can you do the trail not in one go, but in segments? One of the best things about the Israel National Trail is that it's actually broken down into segments and you can pretty much go in and out in every one of them. And some of them you can actually break them down to even smaller segments. So actually there's a lot of groups in Israel, they would, they would do the entire trail over the course of two or three years, and once a month they would go on a weekend and they would do one segment or two, and there are a lot of groups that get together and do this kind of thing. Yeah, that's, what, that's how they're completing it. Absolutely. And the other thing is, so where did you charge your cell phones? Where did we charge the cell phones? Great question. So, as I've said, up north and in central Israel, pretty easy. You can find places all the time. When you reach the desert, what you do, you become very skimpy on your battery. So you turn the cell phone in the morning, you turn it on, you text your mom, this is where we are, this is where we're going, turn it off. And in the evening, we're alive, we got here, talk to you in the morning, and that's it. And that's how you save battery for a couple days. Other questions? Thank you.